In the past six years, 50s diners have sprung up all over L.A., giving Thai restaurants a run for their money. They're all basically the same. Decor out of an Archie comic book. Golden oldies constantly playing, emanating from a bubbly Wurlitzer. Saucy waitresses in bobby socks. Menus with items like the Fats Domino Cheeseburger or the Wolfman Jack Omelette and overprices that pay for all this bullshit. But then there's Jack Rabbit Slims, the big mamou of the 50s diners, either the best or the worst, depending on your point of view. Vincent's Malibu pulls up to the restaurant, a big sign with a neon figure of a cartoon surly cool cat Jack Rabbit in a red windbreaker towers over the establishment. Underneath the cartoon is the name, Jack Rabbit Slims. Underneath that is the slogan, Next best thing to a time machine. I've been waiting in school all day long, waiting on the bell ring so I can go home. Throw my books on the table, pick up a telephone. Come on, baby, let's get some gold. Heading down to the drugstore to get a soda pop, throw a nickel in the jukebox, stand we got to run. Still, gal, baby, gonna chase some news. You sure to look good in them, baby, I'll shoot. Well, it's a one, two, a pair of shoes. Three, four, get out of the floor. Six, come get your kicks down at the corner of Breaking and 46, yeah! All right! Hello, and welcome to Catch Up with Craig, a bonus installment of the Conversations at Jack Rabbit Slim's main feed. These mini-episodes are an opportunity for me to expand on themes and ideas that we cover during the main conversations. On this installment, I'll be covering Jack Rabbit Slim's in a little greater detail. Now, that opening bit of description you just heard was from Quentin Tarantino's screenplay for Pulp Fiction. And before we go any further, I thought I would drop in this clip of Quentin discussing his approach to screenwriting. Take it away, Quentin. When I'm writing, it's about the page. It's not about the movie. It's not about cinema or anything. It's about the literature of me putting my pen to paper and, and writing a good page and making it work completely as a, a, a literature art, uh, uh, document on itself. That's my first artistic contribution. And, um, and if I do my job right, by the end of the script, I should be having the thought, you know, if I were to just publish this now and not make it, I'm done. <laughs> I've done it. I could actually be okay with just saying that that's it. And then th that can stand and whoever wants to read it will read it and, that's, and I'm done. Now it's mine to F up if I go forward with it. Now I always go forward with it, but I actually think you, sh I, for where I'm coming from, I wanna love that script so much that I, I'm tempted to stop. I'm tempted to call myself a winner right then and there before I climb the mountain. <laughs> Yeah, and so, yeah so, the thing of, so the point being of that is there's stuff that's in the script that I know will never, ever make the movie, but it just makes the, 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 the book, the, the piece of literature better. It's, it's a better read. It's, a better, it, it, it's more emotionally satisfying. And then you can, you can, just like you do in an adaptation, you peel that, a lot of that stuff away. Okay, so that was actually a pretty good bit of insight into how Quentin approaches writing a script. Now, the version of the Pulp Fiction script that was made available to the public included three different revisions. The blue revision, which was from August 18th, 1993. The pink revision, which was from September 8th, 1993. And the green revision, which was from October 5th, 1993. And the interesting thing there is the third revision actually takes place after the movie began filming on September 20th, 1993. 
And we'll get back to the script in a minute. But before that, I wanted to go into a little bit more detail about the locations Jackrabbit Slims occupied in reality. A piece in LA Magazine from October 8th, 2019 details the filming locations of Pulp Fiction 25 years later, and there's quite a bit of good information to be found in this article. The exterior was a building located on the corner of Flower Street and Sonora Avenue in Glendale, California, and it was originally a 1959 bowling alley called Grand Central Bowl. This property is actually part of Disney's Glendale campus. The interior was built completely on a soundstage in Culver City, California. As we see in the movie, the inside of Jack Rabbit Slims is very flashy. Production designer David Wasco is quoted in the piece as saying, Quentin wanted it to be like a hard rock cafe on heroin. Returning to the script, we'll get Quentin's description of the interior of Jack Rabbit Slims. Compared to the interior, the exterior was that of a quaint English pub. Posters from 50s AIP movies are all over the wall. Rock All Night, High School Confidential, Attack of the Crab Monster, and Machine Gun Kelly. The booths that the patrons sit in are made out of the cut-up bodies of 50s cars. In the middle of the restaurant is a dance floor. A big sign on the wall states, No Shoes Allowed. So, wannabe beboppers actually Melrose types, do the twist in their socks or bare feet. The picture windows don't look out the street, but instead, black-and-white movies of 50s street scenes play behind them. The waitresses and waiters are made up as replicas of 50s icons. Marilyn Monroe, Zorro, James Dean, Donna Reed, Martin and Lewis, and the Philip Morris midget wait on tables wearing appropriate costumes. Vincent and Mia study the menu in a booth made out of a red 59 Edsel. Buddy Holly, their waiter, comes over, sporting a big button on his chest that says, Hi, I'm Buddy. Pleasing you pleases me. Now, as we know, Vincent ordered the Douglas Cirque steak, bloody as hell, and he got a vanilla Coke to drink. Mia got the Derwood Kirby burger, bloody, and a $5 shake. Douglas Sirk was a German-born director who made Hollywood melodramas in the 1950s. And Derwood Kirby was an American television host and announcer, best remembered for The Gary Moore Show in the 1950s, and Candid Camera, which he co-hosted with Alan Funt in the 1960s. You can see the whole menu on the Quentin Tarantino archives. And some of the other items include a deluxe speed burger, a double speed burger, a double deluxe speed burger, a German burger, the clubhouse sandwich, a hot egg salad sandwich, a grilled breast of chicken salad, side orders of cottage cheese, coleslaw, potato salad, french fries, onion rings, baked potatoes, and complete dinners that include liver and onions with bacon, roast turkey, spaghetti with meat sauce, and chicken kebabs. Other drinks you could get in addition to the $5 shake and the vanilla Coke, are an orange freeze, a black and white, a cherry Coke, and a root beer float. Desserts include a hot fudge sundae, a cherry pie, pudding of the day, cheesecake, chocolate cake, jello, ice cream, and sherbet. 
Now, there is actually a deleted segment from this scene, and it is from the pink revision of September 8th, 1993. It would occur right after we see Vincent rolling his cigarette. And in this deleted bit of dialogue, Vincent goes into a little bit more detail about Amsterdam, and he learns that he and Mia have a shared love of that city. We also learn that Vincent spent three years there. Now, this is actually a deleted scene from the movie, so I'm going to just go ahead and play it. So, Marsala said you just got back from Amsterdam. Sure did. How long were you there? Uh, Just over three years. I love Amsterdam. You been there? I go there about once a year to chill out for a month. No kidding. I didn't know that. Why would you? Hey, do you know a hash bar about three blocks from the Anne Frank house, the Cobra? You been at a Cobra? I mean, that's a real small place. How'd you know about the Cobra? I've known about the Cobra since Derek opened it. You know Derek? I've known Derek going on six years now. You're kidding. Derek and me are like buddies. So are Derek and I. This bow in my fucking mind. I mean, I practically lived at the Cobra. When I'm in Amsterdam, I literally live at the Cobra. I stay in the house with Derek and Petra. You stay at the Cobra? My picture's on the wall. Which picture? Um, you know the photos Derek has behind the bar? Well, there's one of Derek between two girls wearing uh, baseball jerseys. Petra's the one with a baseball cap, and the girl in the cowboy hat's me. That's you in a cowboy hat? So you're the one in a cowboy hat. Jesus Christ. I mean, these things like this make me realize how small the world is. I could have took you out. How come Marcellus didn't hook us up? Oh, when I go to Amsterdam, I go alone to be alone. And the scene picks up where Vincent asks Mia about her pilot. Now, deleted scenes are always tricky, and it's actually good that we have Quentin on record with his feelings about deleted scenes and why he decided to share Pulp Fiction ones on the home video release. So, once again, We'll go to Quentin for his explanation. There's a lot of laser discs where, like, the director kind of redoes things and puts scenes back in the movie that he took out and whatever, and they have these, like, you know, definitive director's editions. Now, I didn't do that on this because <laughs> I made the movie I wanted to make the first time. But I still had scenes that I took out, all right, that I liked and that I generally like and everything, but, you know, with film you can have too much of a good thing. So we took them out, and now... Now, I'm not putting them back in the movie because the movie's the way it's supposed to be. But here in this section, just if you're fans of the movie, you can look at them and just see them for yourself. So we'll revisit these deleted scenes as we talk about them on the show. Now, you may have noticed that Amsterdam pops up again in this sequence after Vincent talks about it with Jules while they're in the car on the way to Brett's at the beginning of the movie. Tarantino actually wrote the script for Pulp Fiction 
while living in Amsterdam. He had gotten a $900,000 deal from TriStar to write the movie. And with that money, he packed a suitcase and went to Amsterdam. There's a Vanity Fair piece from February 2013 that covers the making of Pulp Fiction. And in it, Tarantino says, It was all about living in another country. I just had this cool writing existence. I didn't have to worry about money. Through luck and happenstance, I found an apartment to rent right off of a canal. I would get up and walk around Amsterdam and then drink like 12 cups of coffee, spending my entire morning writing. Three months later, Tarantino returned to Los Angeles with a dozen school notebooks that contained the writings that would eventually become the screenplay. In the Vanity Fair piece, he says, It was about going over it one last time and then giving it to the typist, Linda Chen, who was a really good friend of mine. She really helped me. The Vanity Fair piece is definitely worth checking out. There's some insight from Linda Chen into how the screenplay was compiled into its final form. And there's also a bit with Roger Avery. Now, Roger Avery is a character I'm sure we'll talk about as the podcast progresses, but he was ultimately given a stories by co-credit with Tarantino on the screenplay. But there is actually a lot more to the behind the scenes going on. And before I wrap up this coverage on Jackrabbit Slims, I just want to take a quick look at some of the other faces that we see in the scene. Steve Buscemi, who played Mr. Pink in Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs, cameos as Mia and Vincent's waiter, Buddy Holly. Marilyn Monroe is played by an actress named Susan Griffiths, who played Marilyn in a 1991 movie called Marilyn and Me. And Ed Sullivan, the host of the dance contest, was played by Jerome Patrick Hoban, who also played Ed Sullivan in a Halloween episode of Growing Pains from 1990, and on an episode of Dark Skies in 1996. So that pretty much completes my deep dive into Jack Rabbit Slims, and I hope you enjoyed it. Again, my intention with these mini-episodes is to just explore a theme, idea, scene, location that we cover in our conversation in the main episode. I'll include links to all of the items referenced in the show notes, and I'll also be posting them over as part of the episode post in the Facebook group Conversations at Jack Rabbit Slims. I would love for you to join us over there because my intention with that space is to just continue the conversation that we have in the episode with you, the listeners. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Podcast Pulp. And if you enjoy the show, please leave a review at Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or anywhere else that you can review podcasts and make sure to let me know via the Facebook group or Twitter, that you did review the show so I can read it on a future episode. I want to send a big thank you out to Ghosty from the Vintage Rock and Pop Shop for the script readings you heard during this episode. You can learn more about the Vintage Rock and Pop Shop via the Facebook link that I've provided in the show notes. And finally, I want to send a big thank you to Ken Mills, the Podfather, for providing the excellent show artwork. Thanks, Ken. And thank you for listening. We'll talk next time. It was a teenage wedding and the old folks wished them well. You could see that Pierre did truly love the mademoiselle. And now the young monsieur and madame have rung the chapel bell. C'est la vie, c'est the old.
truthful. It goes to show you never can tell.